450 years of silence had passed since the final words of the prophets. And then, on a night unassuming and normal, he came, just as he said he would. A young woman named Mary, who was with child, journeyed alongside Joseph, her betrothed, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. The couple entered the sleepy Judean town, filled to the brim with the descendants of David. They took refuge in the only place available, a stable. And when the fullness of time had come, Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son, who was wrapped in clothes, laid in a manger, and given the name Jesus, because he would save his people from their sins. And just like that, a whisper in the Bethlehem night, a child was born, a son was giving, a long last cry of deliverance was heard again, uttered from the lips of the word made flesh. This newborn's cry pierced in midnight sky, like a trumpet hurling sin's demise, and defeat of death forever for all who would believe. The ancient days stepped into time, wrapped himself in the frailty of human skin. He came, full of pity, compassion, and power to rescue those lost in darkness and carry them into the kingdom of everlasting light. He came, just as the prophet said he would, to do what we never could. God didn't send his son to earth for our entertainment, or so we could become wealthy, healthy, or politically free. You see, God had one thing in mind when he sent his only son to be born as a helpless child, love. His love for us, love came down, not to live an extravagant life like we would expect a king to, but to do the exact opposite. The sole purpose of this child being born was to die for you and me, because God so loved the world. Amen. Thank you, Kate McDade, for uh, doing our Advent reading for us this morning. Uh, did a great job on that. And uh, so, Kate, this morning is continuing our celebration of Advent. So thank you so much for doing that. Uh, for those of you who I haven't met yet, my name is Blake, and I am one of your pastors here at the Refuge Church. And uh, I don't know about you, but Christmas time is upon us, and it is the, uh, the favorite season in the Arnold household. Is anyone with me in that? Yeah, we have a lot to celebrate, right? You know, we, we say often that Christians, we should be the most celebratory people on the planet. Why? Because we have Who? Sunday school answer, y'all. We have Jesus. That's why we get to celebrate. We get to celebrate because God chose to give us himself. He gave us Jesus. As Kate just mentioned, he arrived, came down, condescended to us, and that is what we're celebrating today. Um, So, uh, but on on a more sad note, unfortunately, recently, I've been seeing a lot of strife happening in the world. Um, Not to, I felt the room come down with me, unfortunately, but um, unfortunately, there's been a, a topic that's come up that uh, has been dividing homes, putting wedges in marriages, ostracizing children from parents. And unfortunately, it's damage is, is often, um, it's, it can't be undone. And no, I'm not talking about politics, not talking about vaccines. I'm talking about white lights versus multicolored lights. So this is, unfortunately, this is a, a big topic of discussion. I know this is hard for a lot of us to talk about. So I'm going to do an informal poll here in the room. So where is Team White Lights? Where do we got? Wow, that is a strong showing, okay? Strong showing. Yeah, I'm mean, hearing some boos. Okay, y'all, we're a church. We need church unity, okay? We need church unity, okay? All right, where are my Team Colorful Lights? They're, I will say they are a minority but a vocal minority. So, okay, so, all right. So, okay, what did you say? Mixed, okay, so white can be considered a color in a multicolored format, okay, I'm, I'm with you on that, so use a little bit of, okay. Uh, unfortunately in this room, the white lights have it, okay, white lights have it. 
I will say, as a, as a recent convert, I am now Colorful Lights. So uh, thank you to my, my beautiful wife, Sam. So, um, okay, next, I want to see how many friends I have in the room. Real versus fake, okay? So where are my real tree friends? Okay, ooh, not a lot. Or as I should say, the purists in the room, right? Okay, the people that do it correctly uh, is what they would say. Um, but anyway, all right, where's my artificial tree, people? The majority, right? Okay, yeah, so yeah, so it looks like we have, so it looks like in this room we have a lot of fake trees with white lights, okay? That looks like what, that's what we have here, uh, which isn't a, a bad thing for that. So, but okay, here's the thing. Should we really call it a fake tree? I mean, it's a, it's a real thing in your house, right? I mean, it's a real thing. It looks pretty real. I mean, it's, uh, it doesn't shed needles all over your house. It, you don't have to keep it alive. You don't have to spend money on it year after year. And uh, they often come pre-lit, and it saves you tons of time. I think I've outed myself. I think, uh, I think we know where I am. Uh, I am team artificial tree all the way, baby, okay? So, so where are my artificial tree people? We've got, we got a few, okay? So regardless of, of what you want to do, I mean, if you want to waste your money every 12 months and watch something slowly die in your house for five weeks, that's on you. You do what you got to do, okay? That's fine. Um, it's, a, it's cumbersome to throw it away, all that. Anyway, but whatever, wherever you fall, wherever it's white lights or colorful lights or real trees or fake trees, we're here to do the same thing. We're celebrating the risen Jesus, are we not? And that's what we're here to celebrate, celebrating that Jesus come down. We know that one day would pay for our sin debt. And as Pastor Paul last week opened up our, our celebration of Advent together, we talked about hope. Hope is what we have in Jesus. And uh, I know uh, he did a great sermon. If you didn't have a chance to catch uh, Pastor Paul's sermon last week, I encourage you to go watch it online uh, because it's a great reminder of what we have. But uh, one thing that he said that I wanted to point out is this. Our hope is not in a place. It's in a person, Jesus. He is our past, present, and future hope. There's a lot of things that we place our hope in. Jobs, security, spouses, kids, our country, our leaders, experiences, you name it. And these aren't bad things in and of themselves, but placing our hope solely in those things will one day disappoint us, will one day fail us, will they not? Jesus is the only hope that will endure past, present, and future. Amen? That is what we place our hope in. Thank you for that reminder last week, Paul. So this morning, we get to move on to our next focus of our Advent season, love. So although love is traditionally represented by, by one of the Advent candles like we have lit here uh, in front of me, uh, we don't talk about love only at Advent here at Refuge, do we? How, how often would you say, church, we talk about love? A lot is a good answer. Every week. I heard somebody else say every week. We talk about love every week because it is our deep, deep desire here at the Refuge Church for you to know how much your Father in heaven loves you. We say it every week because it's God's deep, deep love. It's because of that love that he sent his son to die on a cross and do for ourselves what we can, or do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, right? Pay the immeasurable debt of our sin. So now listen close because I'm going to say this again. I'm going to say it a lot today, and I don't want you to tune me out. Your Father in heaven loves you. I'm going to say it again. I want you to look at me right in the eyes when I say it, okay? Your Father in heaven in heaven loves you. He really, really does. He really does. This is a big deal, y'all. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, God loves you. Do it right now. Okay? Now turn to the other one. Say it again. You only have one over there, but yeah. So yeah. 
God loves you. He really does. This is something we should say to each other often, something we should hear often because it's true and we often forget. This is one of the biggest things that the Lord has actually been teaching me personally over the last several years is not that he just simply loves me, but that he really loves me, that he deeply loves me, and he deeply loves you. And this may seem elementary. It might be one of those things where we just say, of course, but I want to try to explain it, and I'm going to try to Um, explain it by doing two things. One, I want to answer a very simple but obvious question that we have to address. And after we answer that question, I want to take it one step further. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So before we dig in, let me pray for us. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for um, the church that is able to gather together in this place or watch online or wherever we are, God. God, just thank you so much for this time that we get to set aside to focus on what you have done for us to focus on your love for us and your glory in and of itself, God. God, thank you for being a glorious God, but also thank you for being a loving Father. God, remind us of that this morning. God, remind us of of the words that you have written uh, and given to us so graciously, God. Let us listen to them well, God. Let us focus on what you have for us this morning. We love you. We praise you. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. So I've been telling you a couple times now that God loves you. So this creates a question that we have to first answer. How do we know that God loves us? So I want you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 John near the back, and we're going to be in chapter 4. Now, as we read this together, this passage might sound somewhat familiar to you. So what I want you to do is don't make the mistake of letting its familiarity rob you of its depth and beauty, because it's amazing. So even if you've heard this for the millionth time, listen to every word, every syllable. So if you can, as we read this, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read the word of God together. We're going to be in chapter 4, reading verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that while God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us, and love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the very word of God given to us. 
graciously. You may be seated. So yes, we talk about love every single week. But this morning, I wanted us to focus in on two specific aspects that we find here in this passage in 1 John. So how do we know that God loves us? There's a lot in this passage, but I think it answers our question quite thoroughly. Based on what we see here in 1 John, it seems that we can answer the question that God is giving us not one, but two examples of how he demonstrates his love for us. In verses 7, 8, 12, 19, 20, 21, he gives his first example. We love. I mean, can we all agree on that? We, you yourself are capable of love, correct? I mean, you love yourself, you love your parents, you love your kids, you love your cats, your dogs, your iguanas for some of you. Uh, we all love we pets. We, we all are capable ourselves of love. We can all agree on that, correct? So now what I mean is I, I mean how we, the actual love, not flippantly, right? Because sometimes I'll say I love my wife or I love my kids, but sometimes I'll also say I love those little Debbie Christmas trees, okay? So is anyone else with me? I love those things, right? But I'm using the same word. So sometimes we cheapen that word, right? So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about actual love, right? And the fact remains that we're all capable of loving things. This is an evidence that God is presenting, that proving the simple fact that we as humans are ourselves capable of love. That's the evidence that God is giving us in and of itself. Right off the top in verse 7 we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Our love for one another is evidence of love because love is first from God. Y'all tracking with me on that? And God has wired it into us to most importantly point us to him. In 1 John 4.19 we read, we love, how does that finish? Because why? We love because he first loved us. He is the source of love. And this is the first bit of evidence God is giving us in 1 John. The only reason you and I are capable of loving something or someone else is because your Father in heaven first loved you. That's the only way it's even in you to begin with. How gracious of God is it that he baked into us this constant reminder of his love for us? How amazing is that? So when you're overcome by love for, for someone or something or even little Debbie Kirshner Street Cakes, let it, let it, don't let it stop there. Let it Continue on to where it's meant to go, which is worship for our King and our Creator who ultimately loves you. You all with me? So looking at verses 11 and 21, it takes it a step further. For those English majors out there, the Lord is defining the word love not as a passive noun, but as an active verb. In other words, God is showing us that love isn't just a feeling that you hope to catch someday, that it's something that we're commanded to give, to do to be active in doing it outside of ourselves. Now, this could be a whole other sermon, but I simply want to say this on this specific point. It's easy to love those that are lovable, and it's easy to like those that are likable. But what about the outcast? What about the weirdos? What about the kids that sit by themselves in the cafeteria, the uncool crowd? What if you don't feel like loving those people? Well, we see more examples of this command in the Gospels. When Jesus told his disciples in the Gospel of John, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have what for one another? Love. If you have love for one another. So love for one another, even the weirdos? You might be thinking to yourself, that's a tall order. And I agree, but 
I don't believe God is asking us to dig down deeper and just love harder. I don't think that's what God's asking us to do. Because according to what we've already read in 1 John, what's the source of love anyway? Masking. By the way, these lights are really bright. I can't see y'all, so I need to hear y'all. What's the source of love anyway? God. It's not your heart. Our hearts are desperately wicked, right? So the source of love is what? It's God. God is the source of love, is what we read here just in 1 John. So God's not asking you to white-knuckle it and try harder. God's asking you to go to him in prayer, maybe, because as a source of love, and maybe if we ask God to place a love in our heart for those people, the outcasts, the uncool kids, and then we get to make the choice to love them well, because after all, God made the choice to love you well, did he not? We're all uncool kids, right? God made the choice to love you. Who are we not to love others? In fact, this leads us to the second example God gives us in our passage here in 1 John, where he demonstrates his love for us. In verses 9 and 10 of our text, we read this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Now, propitiation, I know, is one of those $10 theological words, but uh, really all it means is it could be also be read as sent his son to be the one who pays for our sins. So here we see the, sec- the Father's second example of how he lavishly demonstrates his love for us. The Father gave us his son. Y'all, that's, are y'all seeing what a big deal that is? Would God do that for us if he didn't love us deeply? Of course not. The Father gave us his Son. And in verse 9, we read that we love God was made manifest among us. That's what we read in verse 9, by sending us his Son to the world. Which could also be translated as, God made his love widely and clearly known to us by sending his Son into the world. And we see this theme over and over in this passage in 1 John, but we see it all over the New Testament. In fact, the Lord gives some more perspective of this in the book of Romans. So let me, let me read this, and I have it on the screens for you all. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So here in Romans, we see the same themes repeated, loving one another, loving our enemies, but ultimately, as we read in verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While you and I were not just indifferent to God, we were his enemies, what did he do? What's it say? Christ died for us when we were his enemies. He sent his son to die on a cross in our place. And then verse 7 puts this radically scandalous nature into even further focus. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps one for a good person one would even die. In other words, Jesus didn't just die for the pretty put together shows up for church every Sunday person. He humbled himself and dove to the lowest, dirtiest slum you can imagine and chased down the vilest, dirtiest, most sinful being imagined. And he died for that person. And if we're being honest with ourselves, 
Which category do you think you fall into? Me, definitely the first one. I'm just kidding. I'm definitely the second one, right? I, I, when I look at my own sin, I am overcome by the depth of my own sin. And knowing that Jesus chased me down, that's incredible. He must really, really love me if he chose to chase me down. And I'm sure you're thinking the same thing. So with this in mind, again, when you come across that person who's not very lovable, love them. Make the choice to do so. After all, that's what your Father in heaven did for you. When you weren't very lovable, he still sent his Son to die for you. And who are we to withhold from others what the Father has freely given to us? We love because he first loved us. And he first loved us by sending his son to rescue us when we were still in the process of running away from him. What beautiful love that is. So we've answered our question, which again was this. How do we know that God loves us? And God has been gracious enough to answer that question not once but twice. The first thing being... The love in our hearts that comes from him is in and of itself evidence of God's love for us because we know it comes from him to begin with. And most importantly, God demonstrates his love by sending his own son to die for us, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And by the way, these are just two of the many ways that God demonstrates his lavish love for us. So now that we've answered this question, it's time to take it a step further. I've used this crude analogy before, so forgive me because it is crude, but I think it helps it's my, how my mind thinks. And of course, it's a food analogy. So, um, but, uh, so, so God already gave us some cake, okay? But now, we get some ice cream with it, okay? So, is cake bad by itself? No, cake's delicious. You give me some cake, you're going to be happy, okay? But someone also whips out that bowl of ice cream. Is that good too? Does that make the experience better? Yeah, it does. They're both great by themselves, but together... Man, we're cooking. Right? Well, yeah, that's, that's amazing, right? So, so earlier, we looked at Romans 5, 6 through 10, and we stopped at verse 10, but I want us to see that next verse. So let me read verses 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And then verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received what? Reconciliation. Man. This is what many theologians and hymn writers call the double cure. God not only pays for our sin through Jesus on the cross, but he also reconciles us, restores us to himself in perfect relationship. Why would God do this? Surely paying for our sin is enough, right? Surely. That's already more than we deserve, like we've already talked about. Why would he continue to give us more beyond what is already unfathomably generous? The theme that I see in Scripture and the precious truth that he's been teaching me over and over over the last several years is simply this. God not only loves us, but he also delights in us. This deeper realization God has been teaching me again, it sounds elementary. It's, again, it's one of those things that when you hear it, you're like, of course. Of course he does. But when you examine your actions and how you approach God, your behaviors don't line up with what you think you believe. So let me give you an example as we're landing the plane here, okay? I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to ponder this for a second. I want you to ask yourself, is God mad at me? 
Most of us would answer what? No. Most of us would answer no, of course not. Jesus paid for my sins and restored my relationship to God. I believe that. I know that. That's the answer. Again, back to the double cure, right? I believe that. But again, we look at our behaviors that tells us what we really believe. So I want you to do an exercise with me, okay? I want everyone to think of a recent sin that you've committed recently, okay? Now say it out loud. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But, okay, so, um, but keep that in your head, okay? Maybe it's something little. Maybe it's something big. Maybe it's something you've never told anyone. But God knows, obviously, right? And that may be scary to even think of it. But think of that in your mind. And I want you, when that sin occurred, or when you were convicted of that sin, what did you do? Did you, one, did you immediately go to God in prayer and ask for forgiveness and look for his comfort? Or did you hide from God for a while out of guilt and shame? Maybe you're doing it right now. Maybe it's something that you know is there, but you haven't addressed it with God yet. I got to be honest, I do the second one a lot. I still do the second one a lot. I would tell you that I believe that God is perfectly happy with me because of Jesus. But my actions tell me that I only believe that when things are going well, when I'm not being convicted of my sin. But as soon as I sin, which is often, I'll confess, I no longer think God is happy with me. So what do I do then? Personally, I try to pray harder or I read my Bible more or whatever that is. Because really what I'm doing is I need to show God that I'm sorry. I need to show him that I'm thankful for his forgiveness. Is there anything wrong with praying or reading your Bible? Of course not. Don't, don't, don't hear me say that. But what it's really showing is what the state of my heart in those moments. What I'm really doing is I'm wallowing in my own guilt and shame, and I'm working to make myself feel forgiven is what I'm really doing. I'm making it about me. I'm trying to cause God to forgive me again. And I'm hiding from the presence of God, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, because apparently I think that I need to clean myself up again before I can make myself presentable to God again. This is where God has been teaching me to just do this <sighs> over the last several years. Now, that might sound like a convenient cop-out, Right? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Of course not, right? But we see in Scripture, over and over, these feelings of guilt and shame for the Christian are not from God. In fact, when I sin, I don't have to pray harder or read my Bible more to make God like me again. I know this because God, throughout the Scripture, says this over and over. One of my favorite spots in Scripture being this one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to read that again. I want you to hear it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian rescued by Jesus from your sin, he paid for that sin that you feel guilt and shame over. And what does God say about your status before him? There is now how much condemnation? A little bit of condemnation? 10% of condemnation? What does it say? No condemnation. This much. 0% condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I want you to really believe that. And I do have some homework for you in this. It's an exercise you can do. So this week, if you sin, 
I'm just kidding. You're going to sin. <laughs> so, so when you sin, or for me, probably sometime in the next couple hours, um, or right now, and uh, is um, I want you to do something, okay? When you sin, I want you to do something. It might feel counterintuitive. I want you to run to God in prayer. I want you, maybe you physically run to a room somewhere to pray, but in that moment when you feel convicted of your sin, I want you to pray immediately, even though you feel like you shouldn't, because you feel like you should be hiding from a God who's mad at you. But what did we just talk about? Is God mad at you? No. So I want you to run to him in that moment. And usually when this happens, I know that what you're going to find is not a God who's doing this and pointing down at you. Look who's here again, right? You're going to find a God with open arms who's looking forward to his son or daughter coming to him in a time of need. So I challenge you this week to do that immediately. Think about that when you feel convicted of that sin. And you're going to find a father who loves you because he does. So I want you to listen to these words because the, uh, the prophet Zephaniah had some words on this very, very topic. So I don't want you to turn there. I want you to simply listen to these words as we close. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God has taken away our judgments. He is the King and Lord. And because he is with us, we don't have to fear. He is mighty to save, and his love will calm us and make us feel rest, even in those moments of conviction. And he will triumphantly and gladly, and apparently, according to Zephaniah, loudly rejoice over you. Does this sound like a father who is secretly and passive-aggressively mad at us? No, it doesn't. He loves you, and he also delights in you. And this is most evident in the fact that he gave us his only son to die in our place. What amazing love that is. I can't think of a greater love to celebrate this Advent season. Your father loves you, like a lot, okay? He loves you a lot. Not only that, he also delights in you. And he invites you to simply be with him and enjoy his presence, even in those moments where we feel like we should be running away. And it's here that we get to rely on him fully. So do that this week and do that today. Let me pray for us. You are a loving, loving father. God, thank you for looking at your sons and daughters and smiling Thank you for the promise that for those of us who have, have confessed with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead, thank you for allowing those of us who have done that to now no longer be in condemnation. That is great news, God. 
because I feel like I should be condemned. And I know I'm not alone in this room. So God, for those of us who, who have been saved by your, great, by your great work on the cross, God, give us the confidence that we read in 1 John. Give us the confidence on the day of judgment, knowing that we can rest in you, that we are already forgiven of sins past, present, and future. Remind us of that confidence we have. God, let us continue to run to you in those moments of, of weariness, and those moments of sinfulness, God. God, be the Father who is always with, that we see you as the Father with your arms open. We know that you are God, but sometimes it's hard for us to believe. So we ask in those moments, help us in our unbelief. God, I want to pray specifically for people this morning where Romans 8.1 does not apply to them because they are not in Christ Jesus. God, you love them. You do. You love, your, you love the world. But God, some people in this room or listening online right now will stand condemned because they chose, they did not put their faith in Jesus Christ. So God, for those people, whether, whether they know they're running from you or maybe those people who have been pacified by cultural Christianity, but they have never truly believed in you, God, I pray that you convict their hearts right now. God, I pray that there are some today that realize that the weight of this condemnation is real. But what you are inviting them to do is realize that that condemnation cannot be lifted by themselves, but only by the work of Jesus on the cross. I pray that that happens this morning, this very hour. I pray that there are some who finally are raised from death to life. They they felt you tugging at their heart for a while. Today's the day of salvation. Let that be true today. Let us say that for at least one today. God, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for how you love us. Thank you for showing us and demonstrating your love for us in such amazing and beautiful ways. We love you and we praise you. Thank you for how much you love us. And we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.